episode 48 of the Actors Room. My name's Jeff Tarowski, and we continue onward with the second part of our David Bowie Odyssey. And that fits so perfectly, because it truly was an odyssey that David Bowie himself went on through his entire lifetime. So here we go, David Bowie, part two. Here it is. Welcome back, everybody. Middle of the summer here in good old Cleveland, Ohio, and it is a hot one today. Oh, boy. Very hot. I've been just outside a lot today, running around, running the kids around, like birthday parties, uh, swimming lessons, blah, blah, blah. So I finally got some time to sit down, do my David Bowie episode, part two, and a little insight before I get started just want to point out that this has been quite a journey going and learning about this wonderful man. And I have stated in my past episode that I was very, I don't know what the word is, cautious maybe, or I had an opinion of David Bowie that wasn't in the greatest of light, say about three weeks ago. But as I am doing research on him, learning about him, I mean, going pretty deep, I'm finding him to be completely different, a different person from, in my mind, what I thought of him and not knowing that much about him. And in the process of doing this research, it has been an emotional roller coaster just because finding out just how brilliantly minded he was, his soul, his artistic soul was quite beautiful. So once again, I just want to say it is a complete honor to talk about David Bowie with you. And it is quite an experience for me to be doing this because I've learned a lot. I think that of all the episodes I've done up until now, this is ep- what episode 48. Uh, now, mind you, I have broken up some of other actors into sections. So I haven't done 47 different people but about 40 I'd say and of all of them this has been my favorite so far just wanted to point that out so getting that out of the way kind of you know get that out there um, letting you know how much fun and interesting and fascinating emotional yesterday I was watching a few clips that he had done uh, just weird stuff it was almost like a oh god like a documentary slash advertisement that David Bowie did called The Hunger it was like a series and he actually did a movie called The Hunger in the I think the early 80s he played a vampire and we'll talk about that in the next episode but I'm watching stuff about him and then I found out just amazing stuff about him yesterday that got me very emotional It came out of nowhere, and it just makes me realize how important this guy is and how many lives he touched. When he passed a few years ago, I was like, oh, wow, you know, David Bowie, you know. I don't think I firmly grasped the depth 
uh, the people he touched. And when he passed on, I think there were a lot of people that were deeply affected, just like Robin Williams was when he passed. You know, he affected me deeply and a lot of other people as well. David Bowie did the same thing. So here we go, continuing on part two of David Bowie. And like I said, I think it's going to be three parts. And I don't know yet. I said that in the first episode, but doing my research on this guy, I'm thinking to myself yesterday, it might go four. And I don't want that to happen. It might. I hope it doesn't. I want to keep it at three. So I may have to kind of, you know, cut and paste and delete some stuff, which is, I hate that. I really do. I hope I don't have to do that. Part two, here we go. David Bowie will be drastic once again and surprise even his biggest fans by making another transformation. He will change the landscape of rock and roll with the creation of his outrageous character, Ziggy Stardust. Keep in mind that this was 1972 and it was at this time the popular musical Jesus Christ Superstar was taking the stage by storm. And I never got the appeal of that production, to be honest with you. Jesus Christ Superstar. Once again, I think I'm probably in the minority. Probably. Definitely in the minority. This was a big hit. I don't like the music. That's number one. And uh, they're kind of making fun of Jesus, right? Maybe not. But maybe so. It's fun. I get that. It is. I've seen it. It's a fun production. There's just something about it that turns me off. I'm not saying I'm the biggest religious guy. All right? I believe in God. And Jesus is a pretty important person. (laughs) I was raised Catholic. All right? Uh, I don't really practice Catholicism anymore. Okay? Uh, My family and I, uh, we go to a Methodist church. Um, But for, for some reason, I see productions of Jesus like this, and I just, I scratch my head a little bit, even though I know it's in good fun. You know, I'm just not into it. Okay, we'll just leave it at that. Uh, but at this time, that show in 1972, just coming on, big deal. This is very similar to what David Bowie was doing as well. Now, mind you, David Bowie took bits and pieces of people he knew and studied And he fused them together. But Ziggy Stardust was his creation. One of the people that would go on to influence him the most in this construction of Stardust was a 1950s American singer named Vince Taylor. This guy was a hoot. Bowie would say this about Taylor. Quote, He was out of his gourd. Totally flipped out. The guy was not playing with the full deck. End of quote. I guess this Taylor guy, Vince Taylor, truly believed there was a connection between him, aliens, and Jesus Christ. And I actually think Bowie met him and uh, saw him perform, 
and hung around this guy for a bit. So he got to know this guy. This is the story. This Vince Taylor guy was slowly, bit by bit, losing his mind. And his act would get weirder and weirder with every appearance, of course. I guess one night, it came to a head. And this is what happened. During his performance, he announced to the audience that he was indeed the second coming. Jesus Christ himself. And he believed this. Hey now. (laughs) Hey, I'm Jesus, everybody. I'm Jesus. I am no longer Vince Taylor. I don't know who that guy is anymore. I am now Jesus Christ. I've been feeling it for a while, and now I just want to come out and say it. But anyways, just getting off there. This would end Taylor's career, of course, because he lost his mind. For, you know, he just needed to go bye-bye. And he did. He went bye-bye. Lost his mind. But this incident that Bowie followed was a central force in Ziggy Stardust. David was quite clear in stating this fact that Vince Taylor was a big part of Ziggy Stardust. The band behind him was called The Spiders from Mars. It was a shocking sight to see in those days. But David dove right in. His act and look rocked the conservative world. It actually scared them. These changes were perhaps a threat if you think about it. What was really going on? But there were thousands and thousands of fans, mostly younger, that were gravitating towards this otherworldly experience. David Bowie managed to put several art forms and figures together and make it work. There was, of course, Vince Taylor, and there was also Iggy Pop. His acting and mime teacher, Lindsey Kemp, so there was Iggy as well, and Kemp. Uh, also, Andy Warhol played a part. Um, and there was something called Kabuki Theater in Asia that played a big role. It was just like a, a theater group that was just very outlandish with lots of costumes, just big and loud. They say when you give a Kabuki performance that it's a little too out there. But that's what David was shooting for. And I believe he uh, also used the historic Italian comedy theater style, and that was called Commedia dell'arte. And I actually studied that in acting school at the American Academy. They taught that Italian uh, theater group where they would dress up, outlandish characters, but fun. I mean, we'd put on masks and shit and just jump around. I actually enjoyed that. Commedia dell'arte. So just a few examples of what Bowie looked at and studied, admired, and thought to himself, I could take all of these things, mostly Vince Taylor, but all of these other things as well, uh, put them all together in a pot, you know, stir it around a little bit, uh, and give a taste and see what we got. And uh, what he tasted was Ziggy Stardust. So he went into... Full effect with the costume, with that uh, red frizzy hair and all that makeup and uh, the whole outfit was David Bowie's creation. 
David was an artist and used all of the aspects of performance and art. It was truly remarkable the time and effort he placed into Ziggy and creating him. This was not a fleeting thing for him. You must understand that yes, he used many different elements of this character, but Ziggy was primarily David Bowie. His album was titled The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and The Spiders from Mars. And it was his breakthrough, his breakthrough album. The album went gold quickly. Members of his band would say it was done at the perfect time. It all came together in the concept and then the end product was bigger than everyone. And the band members actually believed that. It was going so fast, this whole thing. As soon as he created Ziggy, it went to another level. Ziggy is a rock star that acts as a messenger for extraterrestrial beings. What a mindfuck, right? I mean, that description. I mean, that was Ziggy Stardust's description. In, like, most simple way. Was the fact that he was a rock star that acts as a messenger for extraterrestrial beings. Like, his character was going to save the Earth by being a rock and roll star. <laughs> yeah! We're just going to entertain the fuck out of him. And, uh, yeah, we're just going to make him happy. What a concept. I mean, it was a character. It was a fun character. It worked for David. It made him feel like uh, he was uh, expressing his art to the nth degree. He was getting a lot out of it. In the process, he had the courage to go up on stage, give one hell of a performance. And that's what people liked about him. And his music was the fact that he was like an actor. He was an actor on stage. He enjoyed the act. Uh, it wasn't just get on stage, sing my songs as David Bowie, and then leave. That wasn't really exciting for him. He needed something else. Uh, he always needed to feel that excitement, uh, that rush. And Ziggy was able to do that for him. Bowie was so into outer space and what it could mean. And what's out there? And it was such a fascinating premise. And he did it fully, all the way. He believed in Ziggy. Bowie was performing on stage as his character. He says in his own words, I'm an actor. So this fresh idea was a catapult to launch a new phase of rock and roll. Glamour rock. Some critics felt it was bound to happen. And Bowie was the starting point. Music that gleamed. Bowie was making his mark in a big way. But it just wasn't the style and look of Ziggy. Think about this. It was David. As an actor, as a performer, you see the character. But you also see the person. The real person behind the disguise. That is who we fell in love with. And Bowie was showing us a part of him. His personality, his charisma, charm, and talent. There was also a picture taken at this time. While he was performing, I think, I think it was a performance. 
but it really doesn't matter. The picture that was taken was Ziggy in a position where it looked like he was sucking off his bandmate, uh, which was uh, Mick Ronson. He w- he had his head near his genital area, you know, because that's where Mick had his guitar. So like Ziggy's, you know, his head is right into the guitar, which happened to be right by Mick's penis. I was going to say Mick's dick because that's funny. And like a split second in my mind, I'm like, no, that's not funny. Don't say Mick's dick. I should have just said Mick's dick instead of Mick's penis. Is that what I said? Because that's not as funny. Why did I just stop myself right there from not being funny? You know, that's weird. It's a weird point to bring up, actually. Because I'm trying to be like really kind of professional in my episodes and my podcast. And why would I edit myself? I think that's fucking stupid. I'm not going to do that anymore. Because I listen to a bunch of other podcasts. And they're free. Man, this one guy I listened to. Uh, Cummings. Dan Cummins. Cummings. He's a comedian. He does a show called Time Suck. It's wonderful. It's like two hours an episode. This guy's funny as shit. But some of the things he says. You're like, wow, I can't believe he just said that. But it's his show, man. He could say whatever the fuck he wants. So, hey. Right? I tried to edit myself just then. Don't do that, man. Just be who you are. If you want to say mixed dick, you say it, bro. Should have said it. I said it anyway, so I guess it doesn't matter. That's funny, though. (laughs) Mick, Mick Ronson was standing with his guitar, and David looked like he was blowing him. Well, this picture was a big deal. Of course. But David loved it. He actually promoted that picture. Getting it out there. Hey, look at this picture. This is really interesting. And weird. Thought-provoking. And a little creepy. Well, not creepy. Just, like, shocking. Whoa! What's David doing there? So close to that guy's dick. I said dick, but it was really weird. In my mind again. I was like, just for that split second. Don't say dick. Don't say dick. Say pee-pee. Like I'm talking to an audience of five-year-olds. I doubt that's true. I don't think any five-year-olds are listening to this show. That would be shocking. If there were five-year-olds listening. Uh, go to bed. You're not suppo- you shouldn't be listening to this. Hey, you. Are you five? Yeah, you, uh, you are, aren't you? Put the phone down. Put your device down. Shut it off. Go to bed. And if it's the middle of the day, go play with the, I don't know, a G.I. Joe. They don't play with G.I. Joe guys anymore. What a moron. I have no idea what little little guys play with. I was going to say little boys. Like, that's weird. I'm editing myself like crazy. Oh, my goodness. I'm going to have to uh, go back to my notes here. All right, page two of my notes. And uh, see where I left off. Oh, yes. For some reason, I can't get through this uh, David Bowie picture it looks like he's sucking off his, uh, his band mate. I can't get past this. This is just fascinating stuff. But the point is, David found that if there was any way to promote the band in a light that was shocking, David's like, I have no problem with that. Although in the past, his wife told him, his wife Angie presented the idea of him wearing dresses to sort of grab the attention and David was a bit hesitant at first like 
mmm, dresses, ah, but then decided to do it. And ever since then, his career went in a positive direction because he was putting himself out there and being daring. Quite simply, David Bowie was stirring the pot and it made for great entertainment. David Bowie was now famous. He was not only crushing it on stage with Ziggy, but he also wrote songs for other artists as well. I find this to be so amazing and brilliant. For example, Lou Reed's Walk on the Wild Side was produced by Bowie. He was indeed a hit in Europe, and it was time to venture to the U.S. Bowie was excited because he wanted to experience America. He always admired America in their music. Bowie's manager felt that this would be a great time to do it. They were ready. But his manager went all out and spent more money than he should have in the American tour. There was more money going out than coming in. Bowie was living it up on the tour. They stayed in the nicest hotel rooms with 24-hour room service. And they were being taken care of in every way. During the tour, David was getting frustrated with his wife, Angie. She was too controlling and was a problem. You know, it seems to me that the American tour was a bit too much for her. It was getting too big. And she wanted more to say about David's career. She became neurotic. And it placed a wedge between David and Angie. I guess she couldn't handle the crazy success. With the America tour, tour, with the American tour wrapping up, he returned to <laughs> the American tour. I should have just stuck with that. Why edit myself? So that's what I'm gonna say. With the American tour wrapping up, he returned to England a hero. Girls would be lined up just to get a glimpse of him. Now I've seen clips of this. And this is so completely ridiculous. These girls, they're hysterical. They're like, uh, I just want to, this one girl said this, quote, I just want to see a little bit of them. That's all. Just a little bit. End of quote. Just a little. Even if she saw just like his finger, like his pinky finger, that would have been enough. I get it. I have idols too. And if I ever had the chance to even just get a glimpse of them, I would probably be like a little girl, crying in, in the middle of the streets. You know, like the tears are just flowing down red. My hair's a mess. Is he here? Is she here? Like my idol, you know? I just want to see him. <laughs> it's cute, but also very ridiculous. When you really think about that whole aspect of being a star and everything, they place you on a platform and a pedestal, like, ah. It's quite amazing. Here is an interesting tidbit of information. Bowie is popular, going on tours, this big success. He's loaded with mounds of cash around, right? I mean, just cash. Money's everywhere, right? No, wrong. His manager blew through all the funds during the United States tour. 
Bowie was actually in debt. That's fucked up. Bowie was stressed, but he kept the creative juices flowing. He had no money, but was still able to use his favorite drug. Coke. Oh, cocaine. Oh, the powder. He loved it. After America, he used it even more because he was stressed. And you could see it in his demeanor and his body. His craft in music and acting combined to give us his sixth album titled A Lad Insane. A Lad Insane. This album signified what he was going through. The madness, the craziness, the stress, the shit. The American tour obviously took a lot out of him. He both loved and hated America because of it. He got the best and the worst of it. Bowie loved performing and was beginning to hate the whole scene. The chaos was too much. He was split right down the middle. And his older brother Terry was an inspiration for this as well. Terry's battle with schizophrenia was a major thought in David's mind. I can go insane too. I can. So David went on a world tour that would consist for 100 days. Simply exhausting. At one point, he collapsed on the stage. It was quite the spectacle, I guess. The show was booming. And they sang the song, Rock and Roll Suicide. Bowie put so much effort into it. That his body gave way. The tour made its rounds through America, Japan, Russia, and then back to Europe. By the time he got back home, his album was number one. Was he happy? Not really. He wasn't sure of his place in the world. On stage, his music, his craft, and his art. He felt detached and unfulfilled. He needed a change, which is so interesting because... Here he created the Ziggy Stardust. He was so proud of it. But at the same time, because it was such a success, he couldn't handle it. And he felt trapped within this character. People just wanted to talk to Ziggy. They didn't want to talk to David anymore. And he needed that change. So this is what he did. Ziggy must go. And he must be done immediately. During one of his shows... He announced the end of Ziggy. The one-year journey, I think it was a little over a year, was over. And he's going to move on. Ziggy was an influence on bands like Queen. And productions like the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And if you pay attention, all the songs in that musical, the Rocky Horror Picture Show, have a Bowie feel to them, don't they? Many people wondered, hmm... Was David Bowie just another shooting star? Was he capable of reinventing himself once again? Was it possible? Uh, yeah. Of course it was. His next album, Pinups, was a dedication to all the songs that inspired him. One of my least favorite albums of Bowie, it is. I'm not saying it's bad, but just one of my least favorites, that's all. David then went on a mission 
to produce a rock musical about George Orwell's book, 1984. He actually had written over 20 songs for the production, but it was scratched because he couldn't secure the rights. He's excited. He wants to do a musical so bad. This was his first love back in the day. When he was a kid, he loved listening to musicals. He felt that his future would be in writing musicals. So he has it in his mind. He's fascinated with this George Orwell book, 1984. A lot of people were fascinated with that book. David was one of them. He thought, I'm going to make that into a musical. It'll, it'll be great. And he wrote 20 songs. 20. That's a lot of songs. And he couldn't get the rights. Man, it sucks. I hear you. I do. I wrote a, a Marlon Brando screenplay a long time ago. It got pretty far up. And then the Marlon Brando estate said, fuck no. Never going to happen. You're never, ever going to see an authorized Marlon Brando film. Won't happen. He made it clear before he passed that there will never, ever be a movie done about him. Because he felt that he didn't want his life uh, misrepresented. Or things that were very private, not to get out. But I don't know the reason why this 1984 by George Orwell... Why wasn't he allowed to make it into a musical? It would have been fucking fantastic. But these things happened. And I'm sure this frustrated David. Uh, he was very passionate about this project. 20 songs, by God, a lot of songs. I wonder if he used some of those songs into his later work. I'm sure he did. I, I would doubt that he would create all of this music and then just flush it. Because a production doesn't get done. Maybe he did. I'm not sure. I couldn't find anything about that. But anyways. Fuck you. Uh, uh, production people of 1984. Motherfuckers. Dave's doing something so creative. He's ready to go. He's like. Hey, he's probably all gangbusters. Alright. Woohoo. Let's go. Dave. Yeah. Uh, the uh, production company. Yeah. What'd they say? No. It's not going to happen. What do you mean it's not going to happen? No, they say, Did I, I wrote 20 songs. Did you tell them that? I wrote 20 songs. That doesn't matter. What? Oh, fuck. So he had to sort of brush it off. And I'm sure he wanted to punch something. Hopefully not a person. Hopefully he punched a wall. Uh, I probably would have punched... I, what I do, I try to punch something soft. Like this one time, I got so fucking pissed. Right? I was just pissed. At, I don't even remember what I was pissed about. But I was pissed about something. And I'm looking around. It was funny too. I'm like, I'm like, fuck. I need to fucking hit something. So I punched the couch. I thought to myself, the couch is soft. I'm going to punch it. It's not going to hurt. It still hurts. Because guess what? There's stuff beneath, okay, the soft of a couch, the cushion, you know? So I hit the stuff, the, the hard stuff, after the cushion. I'm like, wow, broke my hand. Not my hand, but I broke my finger. This is a long time ago. I don't punch stuff anymore. Or I haven't punched anything in a long time. Anyway, getting a little off base. Want to get back on track. And the 1984 George L. Orwell. I said his name about five fucking times. 
did not make a mistake. The last fucking time I say it, can't come out. Motherfucker. Onward. David Bowie placed the 1984 idea into his next album, Diamond Dogs. So I guess that explains it. I missed that. He placed the idea of it into Diamond Dogs. But did he use the songs that he wrote for that 1984 musical? Maybe he did. Okay, there you go. That explains it. Uh, Strange album cover, I thought. He's half human, half dog. Not normal, but hey. David Bowie, right? Not normal. Brilliant. Not normal. The song Rebel Rebel was a hit. Fucking great song. And it is filled with much meaning in regards to David himself. The Rebel Rebel song. Brilliant song. His personal life got a bit weird. He still is with his wife Angie. Pain in the ass sometimes, but they were still together. Open relationship and all. David meets a fellow performer, Ava Cherry. Angie was okay with it for a little while, with Ava and David being a thing. But not okay when she found out that David moved to New York and then moved in with her, Ava. No, 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 Angie said. Have sex with her, yes. That's fine. But sharing the same toothbrush... Gotta draw the line, Dave. Gotta draw the line. And I want to touch upon... I want to, I, I'm giving you a little insight on David Bowie's sex life and relationship life. I think was just a fucking mess. Now, he will get over all that stuff. Later on in his life, this was just something he was going through this time in his life. Like, in his 20s. What a fucking mess. His personal life was a mess. <laughs> okay. I want to touch upon a technique that Bowie used during his stage career. Okay? He would use the cut-up method when writing songs. Okay? He would get all sorts of interesting words, like out of a book or a newspaper, whatever. Words that meant something to him. He'd write them down. Okay? Cut them out individually. Mix them all up. And then see if you get anything out of it. Now, he didn't do this all the time. But he would use this method sporadically. And I love it. Uh, anything to help with the creative movement. And just sparking something different. Is great. Any method that works for you. And makes your music or your acting, performing better. Uh, yeah. Great, great thing to do. During his Diamond Dog tour, David wanted to incorporate more dance, more acting, and he wanted the show to be choreographed. He wasn't fucking around. He was once again making it artistic. It was going to be a theatrical production, and the audience would be just enamored with it. Money was thrown around to create this with no spirit expense. Money didn't matter. David was expressing himself, and that was the most important thing. It was his therapy, his being. His manager, on the other hand, didn't approve when he found out how much money David was spending, and they were losing money. The manager decided to cancel the rest of the tour. This, of course, 
didn't sit well with David. And he made inquiries about this. Uh, he's doing something good, feeling good. Uh, his production for the Diamond Dog Tour, like I said, very theatrical. He did a lot of mime on stage. He really made it an experience for the audience. Um, and plus the fact he was fulfilling the artistic being within himself. He was feeling good again. And his manager said, nah, you're spending too much money on all this shit. It's done. It's over. I'm pulling the plug. So David felt to himself, what the fuck is going on? And he started questioning what the fuck was going on. And uh, he found out, David did, that he was not making the money he thought he was. His manager was draining his income and Bowie was flat out pissed. Not much money to show for all his hard work. David believed he was partners with his manager in the company, but that wasn't the case. David was flat broke. He would have to keep his chin up and get back to work. There was more wonderful and interesting art in this man, and he would show how much. Bowie was in financial trouble and had to think big picture in regards to the business side. Plus, he was battling with this ever-growing and very expensive drug habit. Cocaine wasn't cheap, but it was essential during this part in his life. Take a listen to David Bowie's yummy diet during this time. His diet consisted of this. Cocaine. Lots of cocaine. Cocaine. More cocaine. White milk. A little bit more white milk. And peppers. So, his diet was coke, milk, and peppers. This diet kept him underweight. Now that's an understatement. Bowie was also paranoid of all his surroundings. And I have to mention that I have seen clips of David Bowie during this time in his life. He was indeed paranoid as shit. Just your prototypical scene I saw of him. I mean, it was just 30 seconds. He was sitting in the back of a car, nervously smoking a cigarette, eyes darting side to side. He looks around, looks behind him. There's sirens going off outside the car. And he says, is there uh, anyone behind us? And David gives like this hard cocaine sniff, like, is there anybody behind us? Then he mumbles to himself and looks very worried. He looks so sick at certain times during this period. Then quite sleek at others, I thought. Like, I see pictures and videos of him during this time. And he looks like he's about to die. And then you see other pictures of him during this time. And he looks kind of cool. Sleek. Thin, yes. Deathly look to him. Uh-huh. But kind of cool. I don't know how the hell he pulled that off, but he did. He was going through the motions, his way, on his terms. And this was a delicate time in his life. It was. And you have to understand, he was simply falling apart right before everyone's eyes. Sort of shriveling away. 
close friends say he was experiencing a destructive phase, and David was open to it. What amazes me the most is that he was able to go ahead and dive deep into his artistic soul while being on drugs. I mean, he was able to still continue on 100% while being completely coked up. It was happening because his next album, Young Americans, concentrates on a different side of him. And I absolutely love this album. Love it. One of my favorites. He goes rhythm and blues. It was no mystery that David was greatly influenced by American R&B music. Young Americans is one of my most favorite Bowie tunes. The song itself. Album, great. But American, the Young Americans song, I, it was in my head for three days straight. I don't know what it is about that song. I fucking love it. Great stuff. He got to work with wonderful musicians on this journey, this R&B journey. And one of them was Luther Vandross. Luther sang backup for Bowie in this album. Is that fucking great or what? David would actually put a name to this music. And I feel it to be quite clever. He called it, quote unquote, Plastic Soul. David cut this record in less than a week. He was moving faster than ever. The dude was focused and full of cocaine. He was like a freight train of talent coming your way. Look out, here comes David. Just supply him with coke, milk, and peppers, and we're good to go. Bowie was white as a ghost. Thin as can be, scary. But all of that didn't matter when he got up to perform. And it was at this time he collaborated with his idol John Lennon in producing the song called Fame. This was a personal song for David. He expressed his frustration with the music business, both financially and artistically. Fame would turn out to be his first number one hit in America. John Lennon knew how unhappy David was with his management team and would also give him this piece of advice. Take action and grab hold of your situation. I guess John Lennon had dealt with his own bullshit while going through the business with management. And I guess David Bowie paid attention. He found a way to get out of his contract. Young Americans made Bowie a star in America. Career's going great, right? And it was. But David would decide to move to Los Angeles in 1975. This was a bad move. He was already deep into his drug addiction, and Los Angeles would only intensify it. He would go through the worst part of his life while living on the west coast of America. David explains it in his own words. Quote, Los Angeles has got to be the worst period of my life, I think. I got into a lot of emotional and spiritual trouble there. End of quote. He actually woke up one morning and realized, I have to do something about this, or I'm going to die. I believe it was also around this time he was involved with actress Sorinda Fox. 
She had acted in a few Warhol pictures. It was into the whole scene, the whole Warhol scene, this Sarinda Fox. She worked at David Bowie's production company, too. She got pregnant, and Bowie was the father. She decided to have an abortion. Now, I don't know how many people of you out there actually know this bit of information. So I thought I'd put that in there, and it's very sad. Now, David had to take a break from music, and an opportunity came his way. Director Nicholas Rogue was casting the film of an alien in his next project. David's name came up, along with other names, of course. But come on. And I love this aspect of it. At this time in his life, with all of his drug use and stuff, and only drinking milk and eating peppers, he was physically perfect to play the character in the film, The Man Who Fell to Earth. Because that's the name of the movie. Excuse me. The movie is called The Man Who Fell to Earth. I mean, you don't get much more perfect than that. Um, I love the movie. And I think this to be David's big first role. And this is the actor's room. That's the name of the show. And here we are getting into his life as an actor. Yes, he's going through a tough time. But he's still able to place all of his talents into a bunch of different things. And acting was one of them. Got a great opportunity here. He's playing a character that's quite similar to him. Looks like him. And now he gets to sort of get a taste of acting. Like really being in a big role. And he got it right here. The man to felt the man who fell to earth, right? Right. Is actually a critical success for David. The movie itself, it really didn't do that well at the box office. You got, I guess, <clears throat> damn it. Getting flemmy here. I don't know what's going on. I guess Rip Torn was in the movie. I like Rip Torn. What a name. What a name to pick. What a stage name, this guy. I don't know his real name, but I'm sure he is sitting down one day. I'm going to be an actor. I want to call myself something a little different. John Williams? No. Um, Jack Smith? No. Rip Torn. That's it. Rip Torn. I'm going to be called Rip Torn. Wow, that's truly amazing. How the fuck did he come up with Rip Torn? I really hope that's not his real name. Maybe it is. And fuck his parents. Like, if their last name was Torn, you know, Mr. Michael Torn and his wife, Mrs. Betty Torn, have a son. What should we call him? What should we call him? Wouldn't it be funny? (laughs) We called him Rip, right? Oh, don't do that to that poor kid. Rip, you wouldn't do that to him. Yes, I would, and I'm gonna. I wrote it down already in the the birth certificate. Rip it will be. Rip Torn. Getting off topic, we should get back on David Bowie because this film was good. I liked the film, The Man Who Fell to Earth. His first big role. Loved his acting. 
you could tell, I could tell as an actor, I studied performances. And with this being his first big role, a lot to take on because he's in a lot of the movie. I mean, he's a star. You get to see him take pauses in the right places. Little things as an actor that other people take for granted. Watching a performance, you get some really bad actors, and there are a lot of them. They just don't do a very good job. They're not comfortable in their surroundings, and it shows. Like, I watched this film the other day, and you're going to laugh at this. It was an Andy Warhol film. I know, right? My, my hero, my idol. I watched this movie because it seemed interesting, the premise, and there was this one actress that I was had a keen interest in and wanted to see her performance. She was nominated in this picture. It was called Bad. And the film itself had, I would say, 10 pretty interesting characters. And this actress that got nominated, I think it was for a Satellite Award, something like that, for Best Supporting Actress. She was really good. Well-deserved award. I thought her acting was very good. And you could tell the other characters, the other actors in that movie, the progression and just the levels of the bad acting as well. It's like, she was so amazing in her role, the one that got nominated. And then you got to see all these other bad performances and how they stuck out. And you're like, oh my dear God, that actress is is so completely horrible. And that actor, oh my God, you could tell they're just saying their lines. And with David's performance in this movie, I got to see him be an actor. Like, he could do it. There's no bullshit. He may not have been the best actor I've ever seen, but he was able to be a successful, believable actor in this movie. And that is quite, for me, uh, that goes to show how talented this guy was. Not an easy task. His co-star in the film, Candy Clark, states that he looked like a man from another planet. His hair was strawberry blonde, and he possessed strong, chiseled facial features. Two different colored eyes, and I've mentioned that uh, in the past, that his eye, right, when he was a kid, got punched by his best friend in the face, right in the eye, and permanently damaged his eye, where his pupil in the one eye is dilated. And people thought to themselves, wow, how interesting. David loved it, though. This was perfect for him. He liked the idea that he looked different. And it worked in this role as well. And I also mentioned to my wife the other day, I told her, I said, I'm doing David Bowie for the next few weeks. And I'm really excited about it. And she likes David as well. And I told her, I said, you know what's really funny too? At one point in his life, he was really into drugs, really just spent, drugged out, pale, but still good looking. And he dyed his hair blonde. He had a cool look to him, man. And I told Amy, my wife, I said, he would have made a perfect Edward Cullen of the Twilight series. Sorry, Robert Pattinson. David Bowie would have been perfect. That's the way I kind of saw Edward Cullen because I have to admit, I read the books. I read the Twilight books. I did. I'll admit it. I read them. And in my mind, you know, you just have a picture of who you think that Edward, what he looked like. And it was kind of like David Bowie. It was. 
like this thin, frail, but good-looking, kind of mysterious, sleek-looking guy. And he already kind of looked like a vampire, David, at this time. So I thought that would have worked out perfect. He would have made a perfect Edward Cullen. David flexed his acting muscles, and it felt good. He loved to spread his wings in other artistic genres. And being an actor fulfilled that need. He was in the middle of a whirlwind in the mid-1970s. And the artistic juices were flowing, man. It was time to not only take on a new album and a new sound, but also an intriguing new character. A new creation. This new character defined what was going on in his world and psyche. Such a fascinating part of his life. It goes deep, man. I mean, it goes fucking deep. In art, music, painting, thought, and experimentation. He gets crazy and scary. We meet his new character. The Thin White Duke. And we highlight and get into this fucking guy next week in the Actors Room. We're going to talk about the Thin White Duke. I liked, loved Ziggy Stardust and felt it to be his greatest creation. But the Thin White Duke is definitely his most interesting creation. Kind of scary part of his life, but a very interesting part of his life. We're going to dive head first into that next week. Solid episode. Part two. David Bowie. Done. That was fun. That was a little more fun than the first one. Next week, going to try to wrap it up like a gift. I think it's going to be even more fun. The last installment, I hope, of David Bowie. I hope everyone out there has had a great day. A great night. It's the weekend for me. Right in the fucking middle of my Saturday. Right in the fucking middle. It's a hot day, a warm day. I'm going to go outside, maybe water the plants. Right? Got to do these things. But before I do, I want to mention that I got my second donation a few days ago. Okay? Thank you so much, Alex. For dedicating and donating to the show, it means so much to me. I got that little message popped up while I was at work. Put a big fucking smile right on my fucking face. And I'm saying fuck a little too much. I should back away from that. Okay. Thank you, Alex, for doing that. Plus, you have the same name as my daughter. Thank you. Great name. And uh, I guess she's from the United Kingdom. Great. Branching out. Love it that I'm reaching out. Not much. Numbers, like I said, pretty steady. But for the most part, the show is growing little by little. Looking to do some advertising on other shows. I looked into that. Uh, I got in touch with an agency. And they put forth a few numbers. Uh, how much money I want to put in. and I, I can have a, a couple of spots on a few other shows. You know, kind of weird, right? Like You could be listening to another show. And they say, hey, be sure to listen to The Actors Room with Jeff Tarowski. We highlight actors, actresses, movies, and other things entertainment-based. Stay tuned for more episodes of 
the actor's room. Like, and I hope they put, like, some music, maybe, afterwards. Like, I haven't decided what I'm going to do yet. They're fucking expensive, man. But I guess you got to spend money to kind of make money. I've always heard that. I just don't want to spend any money. I just, I don't. I've tried to go through this show. Here I am, approaching 50 shows. And I haven't advertised at all. All I do is go on Facebook and I promote the show as much as I can. I'm a busy guy, so in my spare time, if I find the time, I'm able to do that. But it's not really growing the show like it should. Um, so I thought, place an ad or a spot on another show or two and see if it can, uh, you know, I can gain some more followers. I'm thinking about it. Gonna have to spend some money. Maybe soon. I might have to make that decision. Just to grow the show. Um, It really does need a little bit of a boost. I love doing it. I will continue doing it until I don't. How about that? I love that. It's going to keep going until it doesn't. Basically. Alright everybody. Thanks for listening. Visit the website. Theactorsroom.lipson.com I have a Facebook page. I have a Twitter account. At Actorsroom. And I also am also on Instagram. Love Instagram. I've stated that already a few episodes ago when I first started doing Instagram. I love it. It's my favorite right now. It really is. It's so easy, simple. Post a picture. Put a comment. See other people's pictures. Things like that. If you're not on Instagram yet, I suggest you check, check it out. Do it for me. And then, you know, visit my, my site. The Actors Room, you know, I put pictures every week, little comments and things like that. Uh, I have about maybe 23 posts on Instagram. And I hope to go ahead and put some more stuff on on Monday. This show comes out tomorrow, Sunday. I hope you enjoyed the show of David Bowie, Part 2, in The Actors Room. My name is Jeff Tarowski. Go out and have a great day. And you know what? Hold on. I was going to play for you a clip of David Bowie. I fucking forgot. So if there are some of you that haven't turned off my podcast yet, (laughs) which might be true, as soon as like my part of the show where I stop talking about David Bowie, when I go, and then next week, people are just like, they just click off their device, they're done. But if you're still listening, actually, I want to play a clip of David I just love clips of David talking about things. So I'm going to go ahead, play that for you. I hope you enjoy this clip at the end of the show. Go ahead, give a listen, enjoy it. Listen to David talk for a few seconds, maybe a minute. I don't know how I'm going to edit it. But this is David just being David, talking about shit. That's really fucking fascinating. I hope you enjoy it, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you once again. God bless you. Have a good one. Tell me the satisfaction of completing a painting that you, that, where you're on, that you like a lot. That, for me, it, Yeah, the satisfaction of that. It, for me, to be quite frank, it's finishing it so I can get on to something else. I mean, it's, it, just it's getting weird. Through it's, it? not, it's getting through it. It's the process. Um, there's something in it that it just turns, it just turns me to jelly. Turn, my heart and my mind just, just become, I can't explain it. It's a very strange feeling. It's not particularly pleasant either. I can't really say that I enjoy 
I, c I can't really say that I enjoy music or painting in quite that... I mean, it's not like sex or something, which you can kind of really enjoy. There's <laughs> I knew something you'd get back really, to <laughs> It's important. It's, <laughs> there's, something, um, there's something volatile, emotive, and um, something that makes me really quite angry about going through the process of both making music and, and doing visual arts. And, but uh, visuals are But you know, I guess that's my problem. No, but let's deal with your problem. <laughs> you <laughs> but came if, to but see. But if you deal with my problem, I might not be able to do these things again, you see. I oh. I, I'm wary of uh, analysis. Yes, sir, but let me point out to you, <laughs> yeah. knowing your history and knowing your family yes. and knowing your background, you have always, always resisted any notion that this creativity that you have comes from any sort of dysfunctional or you know, madness he, out of it's, family. I think I've often wondered if, if actually the, being an artist of, in any way, any nature, is a, a, a kind of a sign of a certain kind of dysfunction, a social dysfunctionalism anyway. It's an extraordinary thing to want to do, to express yourself in such, in such rarefied terms. Uh, uh, I think there's a, a. I think it's a loony kind of thing to want to do. I think the the saner and rational approach to life is to survive steadfastly and create a protective home and and and, and, and create a warm, loving environment for one's family and, and get food for them. That's about it. That's actually all. Anything else is extra. All culture is extra. Culture is. Uh, you know, that's, uh, I guess it's a freebie. It's something that we, we don't, we only need to eat. We don't need uh, particular color plates or particular height chairs or anything. I mean, anything will do, but we insist on making 1,000 different kinds of chairs and 15 different kinds of plates. It's, it's unnecessary and it's a sign of the irrational part of man, I think. We should just be content with picking nuts. Not mine, <laughs> I might add.